0: Can we, one of my goals at the Future Privacy Forum is, can we get the good guys, the good women, the good people, the good humans to say, if we all go in this good direction, it's like climate change, right? If we all simply said, let's just not compete. Like let's all make enough money, but not win, win, win. And we all went a little slower and we did a little X, Y, Z. And as long as somebody else wasn't beating us elsewhere, it could work. And it's super hard for us to do it until legislation comes in and chumps it down for us. So we're trying to move things in a way that is healthy for the ecosystem so companies and researchers and investors can make money doing ethical, moral things but competing with boundaries that make sense.
1: Welcome to Smarter Markets, a free weekly podcast featuring stories from the entrepreneurs and icons of commodities, capital markets, and technology, ranting on the inadequacies of our systems and riffing on ideas for how to solve them. Together, we explore the question, is capitalism in crisis? And will building smarter markets be the antidote?
2: Welcome to Smarter Markets, a weekly podcast that explores how financial and technology markets can be redesigned and improved to better serve market participants and society as a whole. Smarter Markets is brought to you by ABACS, and I'm Michelle Denity, your co-host and guide through the intersection of privacy, security, and digital technology. Please join me in welcoming my dear friend Jules Polonetsky to the program for Identikit Sequence X, a series examining the evolution of digital identity and how self-sovereign identity specifically can help bring trust and privacy back into a consent-based economy and the privacy technology evolution. Mr. Polonetsky is the CEO of the Future of Privacy Forum a Washington, D.C.-based not-for-profit organization that serves as a catalyst for privacy leadership and scholarship, advancing principled data practices in support of emerging technologies. The Future of Privacy Forum is supported by the chief privacy officers of more than 185 leading companies, several foundations, as well as an advisory board composed of the country's leading academics and advocates. Some of them are awesome like myself. Disclaimer. In addition to his current role at FPF, Jules also serves as chairman of the International Digital Accountability Council and as chairman of the Israel Tech Policy Institute. He is co-editor of the Cambridge Handbook of Consumer Privacy and previously served as chief privacy officer at AOL and as the Consumer Affairs Commissioner for New York City. Stay tuned. My interview with Jules Polonetsky
1: is coming up next. And now back to this week's episode of Smarter Markets. So
2: Jules, 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 welcome to Smarter Markets. This is going to be an extra fun pleasure for me because Jules is from my world. I am from Jules's world. Could you tell us a little bit, like let's go back in the Wayback Machine and let's start off with some potty talk because you know how I am. I like to roll that way. So there we are in Brooklyn and there's a guy and a building and a toilet. How does any of this lead you to be one of the premier experts in data protection and privacy in the entire planet, Jules?
0: You know, in Coney Island... Brighton beach uh, area where I grew up, a lot of the houses, uh, you know, it was sort of like the poor person's um you know, Hamptons, and many of the houses you know were, were sort of bungalows, shacks, not, I don't know what they call a bungalow in the Hamptons. I think a bungalow is sort of a giant thing. um these are actual actually bungalows. Uh, we had the remnants of an outdoor shower, and I remember as a kid thinking that was such a sort of charming thing but also like who would actually shower outdoors you know I didn't even have like the mental model of like you know you you might have some privacy around it it was just like there was this shower out there so I, I don't know if I have an immediate potty connection, but privacy was certainly not on my, um, uh, on my radar. Um,
2: <laughs> I was going to the election, Jules. That's why I'm leading you down the track of standard height and enhanced.
0: Oh, you remember that story about the Trump and his toilets? Of course. Oh, okay. Well, since, uh, since, okay. Well, all right. Well, but finish your Coney Island first. Well, in, in, Coney Island in Brighton Beach, Fred Trump, the old Trump, um, the one who really made the money, not the one who lost the money. He um, built a lot of middle-income housing, um, a big complex called um, Trump Village. And uh, when I first ran for office, I was a state legislator in New York for a number of years. uh, But when I first ran for office, I had my spouse who grew up in Potomac, Maryland, which is a ritzier part of the world. And uh, she came up and and she was campaigning with me, but she wasn't really familiar with the local issues. And I briefed her. I said, well, you, you know, they're gonna ask you my opinion on the death penalty and welfare reform and all that, but they're gonna love you. You're, you're, you're charming and you're friendly. You know, go out there and tell them, vote for my husband. And she came over to me and uh, we were campaigning around Trump Village, this era, big complex that uh, Fred Trump owned. And she says, I don't know. None of them are interested in the issues that you seem to be um, involved with. Uh, So what are you doing about the toilets? What do you mean toilets? What's toilets got to do with any election? She says, I don't know. They're really angry about the toilets. You better get with them because this was a fairly elderly population. And, you know, they were grabbing her wrist, sort of seizing on and saying, you want me to vote for Polonetsky? Tell me where he is on Trump's toilets. So I finally found somebody and I said, well, what's going on with, um, Trump and toilets, and I I want to be on the right side of this. I'm I'm with the people. Where are the people on on the toilets? And what's this all about? And it turns (laughs) out that, you know, in the old days, you didn't pay for uh, water. And then all of a sudden, you know, we became sensitive to the fact that uh, there ought to be water metering, both so that the city would make money and people might conserve. Uh, And they started initially, before they rolled out water meters in, you know, all the houses and all that, they started by putting them in the large buildings. Now, Mr. Fred Trump was not happy that he was suddenly paying a big water bill. And so he was changing the toilets from the regular toilets to these, you know, more environmentally friendly, but lower, a little bit smaller. And, you know, these low flush toilets. And, you know, you had people living here because this was a very good deal. It was subsidized um, middle-income housing. So people moved in, teachers and postal workers, and you didn't leave. Uh, And so they were in their 80s and 90s. And, you know, you tell somebody... Um, and we all get attached to our toilet, right? I mean, you, it's, it's the <laughs> certain shape, certain size, you know, uh, you're never as comfortable as you are on your home throne.
2: <laughs> None of the hedge funds thought this is what they were going to learn today. But yes, you are. We have range.
0: Well, Mr. Fred Trump was changing their toilets and they were angry. Uh, they said to me, they're a little lower. We can't, we won't be able to get up. We're old people. You know, we've got arthritis. I'm going to sit there. Is Fred Trump going to come rescue me and and take me off that toilet. I won't be able to get up. They're going to have to call the emergency. Or he thinks that mumser, he thinks he's saving money. I'm going to flush, flush, flush all day. He won't save a penny on me. So I said, I am with you. It is outrageous that Fred Trump is taking away your toilets. I think I even on my literature, you know, it was vote for Jules Polonetsky. He's against fred trump's toilets he's a man of the people anyway i got elected um and um it was by campaigning against Fred Trump and his uh, and his toilets. So- On the
2: potty ticket. I love it so much. But, you know, it, it, it does relate. And I do want to go back to Coney Island because I, I haven't heard this story about the outdoor shower. But I think it does relate very much. You know, when we're talking about identity and we're talking about phase of life, your identity and your needs and, and your curation changes over the period of your life and, and your circumstance and economics fall into this. So to me, you can't... Can't isolate privacy and identity from a smarter market overall. Like politically, these toilets matter to people's day to day lives, obviously. So let's go back to Coney Island and then let's get into more, you know, where you are now at the future of privacy forum. And, you know, that's got some way backism because, boy, you've been at it for a long time, Jules.
0: Well, let me use the the shower and the the beaches at Coney Island, and the fact that when I was a kid, uh, I was going to be a doctor, as a way to maybe set up the useful way to think about privacy. Because I think a lot of folks in the business world or beyond say, so, "Well, what are all these people upset about?" Right? I mean, um, it's, it's targeting you with ads. It's uh, you're using Facebook, but uh, come on, it's the privacy people that are up in arms, or it's really about. Power and big companies and so forth, but, or or COVID, wasn't it more important that we, you know, tracked COVID? Um, Did did we, you know, trade off privacy for some of the the information? And I think one of the useful ways to think about it is really around context, right? Professor Helen Nissenbaum, who who you know well, um, perhaps one of the leading philosophers of privacy, I think helps us understand privacy when she talks about context. So just think about it. If I walk out into the street naked, I, I'm very exposed. Uh, obviously, I've got no privacy, right? If I'm in that outdoor shower and, you know, someone pulls back the curtain and a, a you know stranger walks by or someone who ought not to be, I clearly am exposed. I go to the beach and I'm perhaps wearing a skimpy outfit, but it's appropriate for that occasion, that same item where I might be wearing it uh, in the shower or I might be um, wearing it in a different context where I'd clearly be out of place, I'd be exposed, I'd be looked at it's appropriate on the beach. I go to the doctor and doctor says, you know, let me examine you. Um, And I want him to see, you know, that pimple on my butt and tell me that it's, you know, it's okay. Uh, I'm not. Now, if, if he takes a picture and it goes to the wrong place and so forth, I'm with my loved one, right? And I'm hopefully unclothed. I'm not thinking privacy. I'm thinking this is a good thing here, right? Intimacy. Intimacy. Because, I trust and it's appropriate. It's desirable, hopefully at this time. Now, obviously, if the picture, a picture is taken and it's shared, you know, inappropriately, then all of a sudden my privacy has been invaded. And so the fact that the same, you know, nakedness can be appropriate. Mm, acceptable, maybe just for a couple of minutes while the doctor sees me in the office. That same doctor sees me, you know, elsewhere. Well, no, I ought to have my clothes on, right? We adjust and we modulate based on the context of the situation. So when you think about COVID as well, if there is an emergency, nobody's like, "Don't rip off my shirt and give me CPR," right? Like, of course, you have permission to do that. It's not a matter of you know, my chest will be exposed. It's like, oh my god, save my life. There are times when. It isn't a privacy issue. It's a data protection issue, right? We talk a lot about, in our world, about the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, the very strong European data law that is a model that has been replicated in many other countries. And it doesn't say privacy much, if at all, in the GDPR. It talks about data protection, which tries to respect the rights and freedoms of an individual by putting us through a process. Do I have a legal basis to collect this data? Do I need all of it? Is what I'm doing proportionate? Right. We could strip search every person and we'd find their guns or we'd uh, you know, detect criminals, but we'd also be invading everyone's right. It wouldn't be proportionate. Oh, but maybe at the border, maybe in a prison. So data protection is probably what most of us who are thinking about these issues and trying to, quote unquote, protect privacy are really bringing a lens, right? Is this data something I have a legitimate reason to use? Am I, you know, spying on you when I have no business to be spying on you? Or maybe there's a commercial reason here, but am I using the data in some out-of-context manner that really wouldn't make sense, right? Do I not understand that you're selling it and monetizing it in some way that isn't appropriate? You're reading my email, but you're blocking spam. Okay, I get it. You're reading email because you have a business, That reports to the researchers and the financial community uh, how well Uber is doing uh, or whether travel booking is picking up because you're reading and analyzing receipts. Well, maybe and maybe not, right? Do I actually appreciate that that's, I mean, that's something pretty intimate. You're reading my email. Don't tell me it's just a computer, right? Someone's analyzing my email. There's a lot of information you can learn about me. No, maybe I took an, I said, okay, Uh, you're going to pay me for it. Or maybe, oh, it's going to be used for a research study that I think is a useful idea. Or maybe you're giving me a cheap or a free service and maybe it's worth it if you've properly de-identified it. And maybe not, because maybe it's just a bit of an intrusion, right? And so applying that lens of context is what you're doing, minimal, proportional, necessary, I think are the, the issues that we
2: need to bring to bear. I, I think to drive this point home, we hear a lot in privacy land about risk and is this something you just buy insurance for and yada, yada. But in the investment community, let's think about context. And, and a lot of the the use cases you're talking about are, are data quality elements as well. So if you're talking about who is allowed to invest. Well, we have rules and policies about contextually, are you an accredited investor? What does that say? That I should be sophisticated to a certain level so that you don't have to disclose and disclaim and protect me. It allows for a transaction amongst parties, the same thing as a FICO score or your credit score or any other way that we assess viability investability and and we did a whole series uh, a month ago on ESG environment social and and governance and it used to be that that section of the board meeting used to just be about just i mean small problem of global warming and planetary environmentalism but now what you're talking about Jules is an investment criteria so let's talk about that a little bit more about a the yin and yang of data protection is how much pro and how much is texion. And then what is this trade-off and balance and context? And we'll lead that down the merry lane to privacy engineering, maybe, and some privacy technology and, and where you play on the future.
0: It's been interesting to see, I think, finally, privacy and data protection becoming a significant part of ESG in some corners. I think that for some time, it's been, for at least a decent number of companies, a board issue because of the obvious risk. And you see the liability and the media headlines. And so, you know, it's become something where at least boards are, "Hmm, we do that. So I see that Facebook was in trouble for that. Are we also doing something like that? We have an app, we have data. Um, But I think what's increasingly making it an ESG issue is the fact that a good part of the world looks at privacy and data protection as a human right. You know, it's not just Tim Cook, who people have heard say it, right? It's the CEO of Microsoft. It's the CEO of company after company. uh, The other day was trying to see who has been on the record saying privacy is a human right. Now, and that's certainly what it is in the European legislative model. It's in some state constitutions, but now we're actually seeing this right fleshed out uh, with legal teeth and details and structure. And for a lot of companies, certainly U.S. companies, they having an investors, they're having a hard time getting their head around it. You mean if I spam someone, it's a human right? I mean, human rights, that's that EHE stuff. That's like, don't use slave labor, right? That's torture.
2: That's human trafficking, child labor. So what do you mean that a
0: cookie banner clicking yes or no? Now, that's a question of, you know, human rights.
2: Yeah. Aren't we being overly PC here, Jules? Come on. <laughs>
0: and, and look, the reality is what the CEOs and European leaders who have enshrined this in law mean is the reason we care about this right isn't solely because some people, like, really want to be left alone and want to live on a mountain and don't want anybody bothering them, right? I mean, there are people who don't want to be bothered, and so they want their privacy. But what makes this actually more powerful even than that is it's the right that protects a whole bunch of other rights. So if I care about things like autonomy and freedom and being able to criticize government, right, if I think the government is listening to me, as is the case in obviously a number of totalitarian countries, because there isn't any privacy protection against the government doing that, or they can just easily get the data from companies, well, then I don't have the freedom to speak or criticize or travel or do stuff, right? So at the end of the day, when you actually start thinking about data issues as this is actually protecting a whole range of values that really are constitutional level values, now you start thinking about it a little differently. You start thinking humans are in that machine, humans are in that data. And if I'm making decisions and increasingly algorithmic decisions and machine learning driven decisions and decisions that may indeed determine whether or not I certainly get legally protected things like credit and housing and so forth, but also might sift my resume, right? I mean, every company today of scale, because people get so many online resumes, is sifting it using some tool, right? And if you don't scratch your head and say, I don't know might I be violating someone's rights? Like, I don't know, choosing only males or females or only choosing people who went to a certain kind of college. And so maybe now that means I'm acting in a racist way because I didn't think hard and say, I don't know if we trained this algorithm to look at the kind of people who've succeeded at the company in the past based on the resumes and the criteria. And that's how, let's look at our top performers and That ought to be how we score the resumes, right? And well, it turns out that we've all been hiring based on who we knew and friends of who we knew or who went to school or club and so forth. And so on one hand, we're wondering, why aren't we doing a better job at diversity? And on the other hand, our processes are being baked into some of the technologies. And so maybe it's easier for some of the U.S. folks who maybe can't fully get their heads around. Why this is a human rights issue? Are the Europeans just being so sensitive about autonomy? But, well, how about it's a civil rights issue in the US, right? And I think in the past year or two, hopefully we've seen people say, oh, I get it. I get it. There's something more I should be doing here about the diversity, about whether my products act in fair ways or not. And those questions can be actually awfully hard because sometimes, you know, there are inequities, right? You want to market stuff that costs a lot to rich people. And those rich people happen to be perhaps majority white. So are you a racist now because you are marketing the expensive stuff to that audience that has money? Well, maybe not, but am I perhaps rolling out my delivery service and I'm doing it in the areas where I have the most customers? And that kind of makes sense, but it turns out that those are all you know majority high-income white zip codes. And I guess that's where you're gonna make your money but you know what? You probably want to stop and say, OK, I guess that's the most economically sensible place because that's where my customers are or that's where the warehouses are. But, oh, my God, do I want to be, because of where I'm building, accused, as Amazon was, right, when Business Week took a look? Frankly, where are they rolling out, you know, the speediest prime? And and look, to Amazon's credit, they're like, OK, we don't like that. Uh, sorry, we'll just serve everybody because They got the unlimited resource to say, we'll just do that, right? Not every business can do that. Another business might say, I got no customers there. So if I promise super fast delivery, it's going to cost me a lot of money. I can't afford it. Okay, well, let's think about it then. What what should you do, right? Like, let's not be surprised by these issues. And they are data-driven issues that affect humans. And so they've really converged with a lot of the civil rights and equity issues When decisions about data and people are what powering and going through these tools, these privacy impact assessments, where you actually ask these questions and you challenge, you know, the algorithm. And guess what? Sometimes you actually need more data, not more privacy, right? Because you might not have any information about the racial composition or the ethnic composition of your employees or of the zip codes that you're looking to serve. And it might actually call for you to say, I don't know. I could be doing something inadvertently, perhaps that ends up appearing to be very biased. So guess what? I actually want the data in order to make more careful decisions and to combat discrimination. So privacy can actually mean more data so that you are actually being fair about how you use data, even though that means perhaps having a bit more data, as long as you actually have a legitimate proportional balanced sensible purpose for what you're doing and you don't keep it forever and then use it for the bad reason
2: so i want to unpick this a little bit because the complexity of what you're saying actually feeds into stuff that we know in business and the other part that I think then this is why I think the rise of ESG and other metrics to say what is, what is a good business? What is a sustainable business? Why spend the environmental resources on blockchain when we could be doing distributed ledger with less computing might? These are pretty complex choices. But what you're saying is the linear algorithm, if you will, of where are the customers, what are they paying, that's who and how we serve. That sounds to me like the 1970s shareholder takes all economic and governance model. So I'm going to sort of twist your neck on this one a little bit, because obviously you haven't talked a lot about lawyers and compliance, because we know that we need lawyers and compliance, but what you're talking about is business. And you're talking about de-risking so that you're not being discriminatory, which is also kind of a good thing to do, my biased opinion. But you're also talking about tracking, collecting, and sometimes collecting a lot of data so that you're driving into the appropriate context. Where do you see this going from a leadership, governance, professional realm is this the ai algo kings is this the legal people it can't be marketing can it or can it
0: i'll go there but let me go here first you noted that one of the key areas in terms of esg and other is actually to recognize who your stakeholders are and that it might be broader than your shareholder and it certainly should be your employee and it certainly should be your customer And then the broader community. And where that fits into this data protection environment, you know, is, look, if I'm arguing that I need this data, and if my answer is because I can make more money or because I can sell more things to you, or I can make you very happy and give you more of what you want, well, that's what happens when I have an algorithm that gives you, you know, the next level of the game at the minute you're going to drop off. And wait, that's not actually good for young people or for, like hooking us i may want it i may want that next clickbait article when i clicked on the first one right i mean it works i want it that's why i um, these algorithms are responding and then the next thing we know you were really happy and you sucked up all this stuff maybe you became an angry radicalized person but you know it worked for the relationship with the company but you've just destroyed society because of the way you've steered people down different you know rat holes or again if i'm arguing Let's say I have a group of customers, right? And, and some companies have been very sophisticated about this, right? Hey, I want to use the data of my customer for a new product. And when it's a product that they want, that I'm improving their service for, they kind of get it and they get that other people are going to benefit that, you know, I improve the service for everybody. But what about when I start monetizing it? I'm going to sell research off of it, or I'm actually going to build products that Maybe you have some benefit, but can I argue that this is good for the community? In ethics, uh, there are plenty of times when you want to use data and you can't ask each person permission. And you might do a survey to show that this is what the community wants, or you might convene experts who represent those folks, right? And so for companies who are making decisions that affect a big part of the population, Many of them don't have the ability today to say, hey, these are this broader group of stakeholders. Maybe they kind of manage some relationship with advocates, but they don't easily get to say, hey, would somebody with a certain kind of disability have a pro or con view about this particular thing? Or how are women going to be, you know, benefited or uh, or harassed by this particular product, right? And so to, to some extent, the community ESG component around this is understanding the environment? Where do you get the data from? Data brokers who maybe stole it or, or got it in some bad way? Um, not your problem. Well, yeah, maybe it is your problem. Or if you have some data, do you make sure that you make it available only to the kinds of clients and customers that are appropriate? You know, where do you draw the line, right? If you do ad targeting, do you say, nah, ad targeting the emergency room for, you know, ambulance chasing class action lawyers, not okay all right targeting the um uh, abortion clinic for the evangelical church that wants to like send the message saying don't do it don't do it right true story somebody was trying to do this so having that thought through philosophy of what you actually care about because it is how data affects the broader community you're in i think ends up being you know a key piece now the question is how do the lawyers Um, And the chief privacy officers who are driven by, at the end of the day, there are all these laws and it's complicated and they need to figure out how to comply and they got to deal with the cookie banner instead of the, can I think about human rights, right? And so most companies are spending their time trying to simply scale what is already a complicated uh, world. You know, many years ago when I was the chief privacy officer at DoubleClick, you know, I said, I live in the unregulated world. I'm not in the banking world where there are laws around this or in the healthcare world where there's laws around this uh, or credit where there's rules around it, right? This is just sort of marketing and average stuff. Well, 20 years later, since uh, my early days at DoubleClick and AOL, the rest of the world and increasingly the U.S. has decided that data is something that needs to be regulated. And we're really at the front end of it, right? We've had these new laws in California. And so far, between industry lobbying and and other you know efforts, it's been mostly, hey, let's add new rights to opt out of sale or new rights to limit ad targeting uses of data. But they're getting a little more sophisticated and they're starting to add in terms, not just from Europe, but from the early days of data protection restrictions on government, where the US really was a leader, and saying things like, are you minimizing the data? And we don't know what, what that means yet, right? We've got laws that have gone into place at the state level that say you need to do data minimization. Well, how minimum? Very minimum so that I can't really do what I want or can only make a little bit of money or I keep it forever and i make incrementally a tiny bit more, but I'm keeping it forever at high risk. Well, I guess that's probably not a good idea, but what is the right balance? So we are rapidly regulating the rest of the data economy europeans and a number of other countries already have and the lawyers and the risk folks are trying to keep up with this hodgepodge of so far and my friends in privacy complaints are gonna you know yell so far kind of mostly consistent like they're not exactly the same so all of us sort of bean counters our heads melt down uh, here's exactly what i've got to give you access to in this state but in europe i've got to give you access to this but that well you know what Yes, it's a compliance problem. It's why the whole privacy tech market, you know, is developing because you need to do the nitty gritty. Your cookie banner needs to be different in this country, in that country, and this set of rules here, right? Or you spend a lot of time trying to find a lowest common denominator, but they aren't yet radically different. And increasingly, we're starting to see newer ideas that are incorporating more complicated and more, more nuanced notions, uh, ideas like... The companies you do business with should be fiduciaries. Wow. Wait a second. They're selling my data. How are they fiduciaries, right? Well, kind of not doing things you really wouldn't want them to do. Well, what does that exactly mean? So we're, we're in this rapidly regulating phase. We see the investors moving into the privacy tech side and, you know, multiple unicorns now in that, in that area. But I think we're only scratching the beginning because um, this is complicated, nuanced stuff, And a lot of it is driven by, you know, Congress and others wanting to do stuff about big tech. But guess what? It's really hard to say, Facebook, you can't do this. Or, hey, cookies can't be used in this way and not also dramatically affect Oh, just about everybody. California tried to exclude, um, you know, small businesses. They said if it's under, um, I don't know, I think 50,000 customers. So, you know, hey, your local laundromat doesn't have 50,000 customers. Well, guess what? They have a website. And maybe the guy's actually, the woman who owns the laundromat's got like a chain of three and they just did a promotion and there's ads. And it's just amazing how, well, pretty much anybody who's got any kind of web presence, you know, fifty thousand downloads of your app—that's not a lot, and that's certainly what. So, very, very hard to regulate just the the big actors and uh, kind of hem in the facebooks and the googles without, frankly, regulating just about everybody.
2: So you've got a you've got a full time cadre of of legal analysis and attempting to get out of a get out of is is a judgment word I'll say to comply with some of these vagaries of the law. And that's great, and you do the and you have tax attorneys too, so is it the c f o who is born in this type of complexity and trade off and investment versus savings versus open budget versus like every penny counted on a tool? Where does this sit for governance for driving these assets forward because as you've said in in your first you know as we were talking about Coney island and and the toilets it's This is personal stuff, not just personal secret stuff, but how do I want to live my life? How how open do I want to be? How many identities can I curate at age 15? And should that follow me into 50? So where does this sit? Is this a CFO's add-on? Is this a new type of unicorn uh, C-level? How do we do this?
0: The companies we surveyed recently in a report that we did for the Privacy Tech Alliance, where we pulled together a lot of leading privacy tech companies and many customers who buy the technology, what we learned in those conversations was, you know, most companies see data as critical and core to their future and providing the services they do. And what the more sophisticated companies are starting to recognize is, okay, So having that data available. Yeah, that means like somebody spending money on infrastructure and security and so forth. But having it available means that I can move it from Europe to the US. And that requires some specialized work. It means that I have the right permissions around it. And I've collected so many things in so many places with vendors and sub vendors and partners and so forth. Someone actually has to understand what we have, not from a, What server does it sit on or which employees have access to it, which is certainly going to be dealt with by CIOs and CISOs and so forth. Somebody actually has to understand what rights do I have to use this data? Is it my customers and I can't use it? Is it my customers and they'll let me use it, but guess what? My customer didn't get permission for the way I want to use it, or I didn't contract in that manner. Or there are laws in all these countries that say, if I want to do X, Y, Z, I have to have gone through this process where I identified the risks and I minimized them and I did a privacy impact assessment and so forth. And so the more sophisticated businesses are saying, I need a business outcome. The business outcome is I can use the data for research. I can improve my products. I can personalize things. What team is going to make sure that what the CIO and the business leads want to do with data? Can be done, not simply that contracts have been signed, but somebody actually understands the data envelope of the data profile of the company and its stakeholders and its customers and its partners and its cloud providers. Because guess what? You might once you start doing that, you start learning there are business models built off of your data that maybe you didn't even realize, right? I just used some vendor who helps me with two factor and they kind of collect and they send that SMS and they say, well, we have the rights to use, you know, your data anonymously, which you figured meant, I don't know, report to Wall Street, how many texts are sent. And then you look a little deeper and you're like, oh, they're actually facilitating appending cookies to identity and have this entire business model built off the back of my business, which I didn't even know about, or maybe I didn't care. But now you're telling me I actually might be selling my data under the definition in California because I'm simply facilitating this little third-party kind of stream of revenue that I maybe care about. Maybe it's a lot of money. Maybe I don't. So business outcomes. And as a result, it's increasingly sitting, frankly, in its own department. People are building out these departments because these are the people who have to train employees have to actually have a view into product development across the country, across the company, have to be dealing with ethical questions of how and where and when data will be used. So certainly lots of people who are senior in legal, but they turn around and they actually need a tool that's going to map data across the company. And well, actually they need the CIO or the CISO to be spending the money on that infrastructure. So we're in flux and the lawyer's, are kind of losing control because they're not the ones who can manage big development projects. They don't know how to buy a million-dollar piece of software and develop it so that it actually suits their needs and then integrate it with dozens of groups at a very basic level where it's maybe scanning and categorizing all the data at your company. And so significant folks with the budgets who know how to build things are stepping in. And our peers... the Privacy lawyers, the chief privacy officers are kind of like, well, I'm the one who gets to decide kind of what's allowed or what it means, but increasingly others are building it. And so the challenge for our folks is to step up and understand how the business needs to use the data so you can actually be strategic and you can help the business units who very often are just doing what they need to do and not thinking, well, I better get permission here for a whole bunch of things because you know that that data is going to be interesting to the research team or the analytics team. Well, I'm not, I'm just the marketing team. So I got the data and now it can't be used for anything else because I only cared about X. Well, guess what? By being deeply embedded in the business and understanding where it is going, you might be the one to negotiate that broader set of rights or to uh, structure and capture information about it that opens up other business opportunities. So that's,
2: I think, the path that I see happening. Yeah, I mean, I agree with that path. And I think it's hard to call data about human beings goods, but there is a cost of goods sold. There is a churn number for employees. Uh, people are always doing their, you know, employee SAT scores and whatnots because they're trying to measure ephemeral rights and report on those ephemeral rights. I agree with you that I think. We have got to move off of the manufacturing models with all the Sigma measurements, with the 1970s, the shareholder wins all the time of any big argument that every lawyer needs to hyper-specialize. It seems to me that if we're going to talk about a digital age with informational data being proliferated as we did with data rights management in the late 90s, right? You didn't have music sharing where you couldn't control the asset and you couldn't understand how much would it cost you to sell one song for 99 cents. That was ridiculous and you couldn't do it. But having digital rights to actually segment out those intellectual properties, you can actually build that into a profit and loss statement as as much as a pure risk profile I believe that's where we're going in a smarter market. I think that's where it plays in. So let's ask um, specifically, you know, name of your most recent report, which I, of course, read with bated breath. And um, if you had a dollar to spend in privacy tech, which of the categories would you pick?
0: Well, the Future of Privacy Forums report on the privacy tech sector noted that we're entering a third generation of these tools, the first generation really was, well, I need a cookie banner because that's what the law says, so who can give me one? Or I need a privacy impact assessment. It's
2: like performative consent. (laughs)
0: Exactly. Right. And we're now seeing, you know, just about everybody needing multiple tools for multiple purposes. It's the same data often. Nobody wants to do multiple integrations. And so we're seeing the emergence of platforms That increasingly will not only handle your privacy impact assessment and your cookie banner and your data mapping. Um, They might even help you with the identification. They may help you with managing all your vendors and identifying uh, the risks. And we're even seeing some of them stepping into things like the general ethics and compliance type uh, activities that other companies have already been doing. So they're really becoming, I'd say, platforms for risk management platforms for data governance in a broad way. They haven't yet really evolved into the ESG tool that they need to. The metrics of how you measure whether you're doing a good job are still very informal. We we just had about, let's say, 20 chief privacy officers from a range of, of top companies sort of share with each other, um, how do you measure what you do? And nobody really felt that they had nailed it, some better than others. But nobody said, Well, I just measure how many data breaches, right? I mean, you're not really the one directly responsible for that. Like, stupid stuff happens. And um, if you didn't have any this year, maybe it was just luck. And so the number of, you know, requests from customers for their data that you handled, um, the number of products you reviewed, I mean, those are all sort of spinning the wheel and obviously stuff you need to do. But what does it say about whether your business, given the sector it's in, is doing what would be considered responsible, you know, will there be a report from ProPublica or from um, some young PhD who's making her name by, you know, poking at your product and then saying, here, look at all the terrible things this company is is doing. And that's where I think there's room for those products to go.
2: Interesting. Well, Let's see, the future's bright. How big do you think the privacy tech market will be in the next five years? And then, you know, final thoughts, Jules, where are we going? What is the future of privacy? And what's what's the forum? How do we engage with you?
0: Well, at the Future of Privacy Forum, we bring together senior folks responsible for data, whether they're chief privacy officers, senior legal people, business CEOs, if they're smaller companies even, to compare notes, to work with our teams on some of the hard issues like I don't know, de-identification. Can I really get value out of the data in a way that's going to avoid the risk? Uh, or how do I actually assess a machine learning project and walk through it and assess whether there's bias? Um, how are others doing it? What do the regulators want? Can we convene and talk to the regulators and hear what they think and explain to them what we do? You folks the future privacy firm, could you spend some time trying to figure out um, how you deal with things like open banking, right? We want interoperability. We want all the big companies coordinating so that little players can can innovate. We, we have, you know, health records that are going to be more accessible soon. We have banking data that is going to be more accessible soon. How do we make sure we don't have problems like the Facebook Cambridge Analytica, where, you know, data clearly went out in a very interoperable way, but then was used in ways that we all... I think created a lot of concern, right? whether it was for elections or radicalization or the like. So struggling over these questions because there isn't always a clear answer. There's a lot of gray in the middle and you kind of need some consensus. You need a code of conduct. You need a best practice. And so we try to do lots of um, standards and best practices or baselining or norming so that folks can get on their, um get on the same page. How big will the privacy tech market be? Look, it should be the size of the security market pretty soon, pretty soon, right? Everybody kind of gets that you need people, you need technical people, and you need policy people. It's not just about the people, you know, doing the security pen testing. It's about the people who say, I don't know which the policy be about, you know, which kinds of employees get access to what kinds of data. And hey, there are trade-offs. We could make it really hard to get in, but then our employees are going to Unable to get in and our customers won't be able to use our product, right? So we kind of get that you need outside people, you need, um, assessments, you need third parties, you know, doing white hat attacking, you need your own work. And I think we're at the early days of privacy getting into that direction. People got it when it was security because, oh my God, there's ransomware. My company's being shut down and there's massive liability. We're now seeing the massive liability coming because of the regulations and the class actions and the European regulation. But you know what? We shouldn't miss pointing out one big factor that I think we didn't really touch on. The legislation for many companies is the least of their problems. Here's what's happening sooner. You don't do business in your own house and in your own vehicle. You're doing it on Microsoft's operating system or Apple's. You're doing it using Google's tools or Facebook's tools or browsers or app stores you're living in a mall. Your business is in a mall with a lot of rules, and the mall kind of cares about making its own money, but it also cares that, you know, it doesn't accidentally rent to um, a porn shop because that wouldn't work. And on the internet, it's really hard to say, mm, I'm going to keep out because anyone, I, I mean, it's a self-service mall. Anyone can rent because I don't have the time. I want to be a huge mall. I don't even want to look at my customers. Just send in my check, put in your credit card, Right. And that's how I can end up in an app store or in a browser and so forth. So all of a sudden, because of the pressure, those players, and yes, there's competition issues and they all want to win themselves and all that. But even if they were the goodest of good actors, simply saying, hey, we just want a nice product. We want to make a nice phone for our customers. And we're not really being roughed about anybody else or trying to advantage ourselves, right? Let's assume we're living in that good world where the new FTC chair, Lena Khan, has said, beware i will bite you big time so you now behave well no matter how big and powerful you are right because that's where we're heading now you still are gonna have the fact that people are doing business in someone else's infrastructure and they care about your unhappy customer because they make a fuss and they say no one go to that mall i got ripped off there right and so google and every well every browser has said cookies not working anymore for us right google Okay, they're the last and they've said, well, we kind of want to keep advertising going because we sort of make money and it we'd really be accused of antitrust if we just said, make it go away like everyone else did, right? But at some point they've said, cookies are gone. Apple has changed the permission model for apps, right? Very few people, all of you iOS users, guess what? You business people, you capitalists, well, guess what? You're saying no, you are all saying no Because everyone seems to be saying no. A very small portion of people are saying, yes, I would love to be tracked for ad personalization, right? So, wow, what are the platforms gonna do? And you can yell antitrust all you want, but the reality is that even with respect for whatever the strongest antitrust rule is, there's a lot of room for them to try to make sure that their environment is good for their customers Um, who happen to be your customers. And so thinking hard about the platform rules and making sure you don't get the death penalty by being booted out of the app store and properly interpreting those terms, like, wow, that's the law of the land for many of us. But how many people are reading closely, unless you're a developer, the the app store guidance or the, the proper rules for using cookies? And so That's moving far more quicker than legislation, with far more dramatic economic impact, and a lot of it is self-inflicted wounds. Things where industry kind of could have stopped, but nobody was there to say, you're spewing on the environment. So here was, this was a lesson from AOL. At one point, we were pop-up kings, and everybody, right? The web was a web of pop-ups, and you hated it. And you couldn't even avoid it because you didn't even know which site was giving you the pop-ups, right? You went to some site and there were no pop-ups, but then you got pop-ups for the rest of the day because they left pop-unders and pop-overs and, you know, whatever they were called, interstitials, right? And so at some point, we, seeing our customers slowly going from dial-up to broadband, said, well, we ought to be extra special nice to them. And they don't seem to like the pop-ups, even though we make a lot of money and they click on them, but they say they hate them, so we won't do them anymore. So we stopped. And guess what? It didn't make a difference because they kept getting pop-unders, pop-overs. They went on the web and they thought we were still giving them pop-ups. They would check their AOL mail and it was like, you got pop-ups because the last site you went to had left some behind. So I remember reaching out to some of the trade groups and saying, this isn't going to work out well. People don't like it. I've heard that there's a thing called a pop-up blocker, a new technology And some very tech savvy people are downloading it. And the group said to us, that's anti-competitive. That's, they're stealing our stuff. We're going to sue them. That'll never take off. And I said, I don't know. It's like kind of the internet. These things sort of take off if like people like it. And then it it could, no, we don't believe it. I said, I I, I now heard that the browsers are going to build pop-up blocking because they think people want it. And guess what? They call themselves user agents. No, they're browsers. They're in the business of the big companies. I'm like, the people who work there, they're these geeky people and they work for what they consider to be a user agent and they compete with the other browsers. And guess what? They compete on privacy and they compete on who's going to give you the best experience. And they think that pop-up blocking is going to make a better experience. That's not going to take off. That'll never take off. Right. And then what happened? Boom. Right. Right the industry was sort of busted when maybe you could have worked something out. Hey, maybe just one a day, maybe, right? But it was very hard to kick out the bottom 10% of the industry and say, you're really destroying this for all of us. And what's happening now is sort of the same thing. There's all sorts of activity where it's kind of destroying some of the environment for everyone else. And as a result, the platforms, again, whatever the set of incentives are moving, to fix what they view as consumer problems. So can we, one of my goals at the Future Privacy Forum is, can we get the good guys, the good women, the good people, the good humans, to say, if we all go in this good direction, it's like climate change, right? If we all simply said, let's just not compete. Like, let's all make enough money, but not win, win, win. And we all went a little slower and we did a little X, Y, Z. And as long as somebody else wasn't beating us elsewhere, it could work. And it's super hard for us to do it until legislation comes in and chumps it down for us. So we're trying to move things in a way that is healthy for the ecosystem so companies and researchers and investors can make money doing ethical, moral things, but competing with boundaries that make sense.
2: Yeah, I it's full circle and it's a great place to end the conversation because we could talk for decades. And in fact, we have. We do, um, yeah. <laughs> I think it's full circle of if you think it's just a monetary model of saving waters and you're only going to save this much money and you're going to put the toilets in, you're going to lose. There's going to be people who care about other things other than money. They're going to come in and they're going to have a problem with that and you're going to have that conflict. Same thing, you know, the 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 AOL tale of, we just want more, 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 more until we get stopped, cold, dead. And here we are, we want to get out of COVID, but we like seeing our doctor for the sniffles on a telepresence. And we liked sometimes being able to do Zoom school. Um, The kids are devastated. There's probably never going to be a snow day again. That's bummer. Um, Yay for every stay at home mom or dad out there. But I think where we're going and what I'm hearing from you, Jules, is actually a pretty exciting place. There's a lot of innovation here. There's going to be lawyers that are going to have to change their perspective from Dr. No, Dr. Only Law, Dr. Backwards to how do we work with the business? The financial people, I think, have a ton of innovative room here to understand that a, a dollar with ethics attached to it will probably in the long run, and not the 10, 15, 20 year, maybe I'm not in this job long run, but I'm talking three, four quarters ahead, may be more profitable if you were looking at our profit and loss statements in a more complex, person-centric, data-centric, and quite honestly, interesting way.
0: And you need organizations to do it collectively. It's super hard to be the only good actor, right? If you're Apple and you're Google and you're you got a big ecosystem, and you say here are the new rules because we're under pressure, or we think this is the right thing. That's fine, right? But everyone else, it's super hard to be, you know, holier than your neighbor who just does two things, right? The business people don't like it. The the customers run there because maybe the price is cheaper, but meanwhile, you know, they're buying from you know a bad source or whatever the case is. You need standards and trade groups and think tanks to sort of say here's what the good people do. This is what is good manners. If you don't follow good manners, then someone has to come in and put a law, right? Which is never ideal that says, you can't do that never. And then you get in trouble, right? Can we all agree and set boundaries which have nuance and flexibility and prosper
2: together? We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Smarter Markets and our continuing examination of digital identity and its role in building a trust-based economy. Please help us get the word out about the podcast by leaving your ratings and reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. Your support and engagement means the world to us, as does your help spreading the word about smarter markets via social media and word of mouth. On behalf of ABACS, I'm Michelle Denity. See you again next week.
1: That concludes this week's episode of Smarter Markets. For free episode transcripts, visit smartermarketspod.com. Smarter Markets is 100% listener-driven, so please help more people discover the podcast by leaving a review on Apple Podcast or your favorite podcast platform. Smarter Markets is presented for informational and entertainment purposes only. The information presented on Smarter Markets should not be construed as investment advice always consult a licensed investment professional before making investment decisions. The views and opinions expressed on Smarter Markets are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of the show's hosts or sponsors. Smarter Markets, its producers, sponsors, and hosts, Eric Townsend and Abex Technologies, shall not be liable for losses resulting from investment decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on Smarter Markets.